Ah, yes, summertime is here, and we are ready to have some more fun, goof off, and talk comedies on this edition of We've Seen That. I am merely T.J. Reeves. I'm based in West Central Florida in the Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater area. He is the famous Jay, my partner, Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, look, I got to point blank hit you with this. Were you the kind of guy that would always look to skip school? I don't know this about you. Would you ditch uh, frequently no. or at least occasionally? No, I didn't. Class was a good kid. You were a good, uh, solid, straight-A student that always uh, showed I didn't up? I did straight-A's. I didn't say that. I, I was... <laughs> I was an English person. I could do English from my sleep. That's how I ended up being a writer. But the geometry and algebra two and stuff like that, I needed to be there so I could make sure and get through. Uh, I understand. So you were not the type that would say, how could I be expected to go to school on a beautiful day like today, right? Which is kind of the mantra for the movie that we're going to talk about, a comedy classic, another John Hughes. We're going to go back to a John Hughes movie again, Famous Jack. Right, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, pretty much every day being in the DFW area, we would have, oh, you know, we don't have much of a winter, we'd have some really cold days, but for the most part, we'd have a lot of nice days, and when you're going to school, and look how nice it is outside, and think, man, it'd be a great day to be at the golf course, or if the Rangers had one of those afternoon businessman specials, you know, because they were traveling, and there's a lot of times the idea popped into my head, but, you know, I was thinking at the same time, it's like, you know, the risk-reward thing, the school that I went to only had kind of one way in and out. And so it was really rolling the dice if you wanted to go. Very true. All right. So, uh, again, by the way, we are. We've seen that on social media via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can find the show and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you found us, including our friends at Red Circle. Thank you for doing so. And we have a special guest that will be coming up to talk more about uh, this movie. More on that in a second. Are you ready? I think the audience may have an inkling what we're doing this week. Are you ready? Five, so five makes Ferris Bueller's day off. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Well, why should he get to skip school when everybody else has to go? Syphilitic meningitis. He never gets caught. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. Well, he's very popular, Ed. I recall Central Park in fall. Ferris Bueller, do you know him? Yeah, he's getting me out of summer school. They think he's a righteous dude. Think he'll be alive this weekend? I can see him denying popular beliefs, setting off on some impossible mission. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. He does whatever he wants. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. Whatever he wants. He's very cool. And he never gets nailed. Ferris can do anything. Oh, he's such a sweet. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. It's a fool's paradise. He is just leading you down the primrose path. Matthew Broderick. Bueller. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's day off. Because life is too beautiful a thing to waste. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, released June 11th, 1986 by Paramount Pictures. So June 11th, that means it came out on a Wednesday. Remember back in the good old days when the big movies, when you knew they didn't come out on Fridays or Thursday nights like now, Wednesday was the big release? It was one of those. It opened at number two. It made $6.2 million. It opened against Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, which was number one that week. It made ah. $8.8 million. So it, it opened, you know, back then it just seemed like they kind of just threw the movies out. Like now it's all, you know, a year in advance, you know, when these movies are coming. But back then they didn't have any problem opening against one another. Um, 
So let's let's look at the year 1986 when Ferris came out. It it finished at number ten. So let's kind of go down the list. At number ten was Ferris Bueller, seventy point one million. Number nine, Ruthless People, Danny DeVito, mm-hmm. and Judge Ryan Hall, Bette Midler. Number eight, Eddie Murphy, The Golden Child. Number seven, Aliens, the sequel to Alien, the James Cameron Aliens. Number six, Back to School, which we just mentioned. Number five, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Right. Number four, The Karate Kid Part Two. There we go. Number three, the winner of Best Picture in 1986, which was, do you remember? 1986 Best Platoon. Picture. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> was, interesting. We'll I circle always, back to that. I think, I think back to Naked Gun when they come out of the theater and they're dying laughing and everyone else is crying. Because it's show that Platoon. They Platoon. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so then uh, Platoon made $138 million, jumping up to $174 million. For number two, we had Crocodile Dundee, the original. Yep. And number one from 1986, do you care to guess? I, you had me. You had me on platoon. I'm trying to think. Uh, top. What about Top Gun? Top Gun. Oh, Uno. Look and, at you. and you can verify. I did not know that. I don't have anyone that who's in ever front listened to any of our shows know that you don't know the. Box I don't. Office. Yeah, so I do not do very nice well surprise. in the box office. And I was trying to contemplate was Top Gun '85 <laughs> or '86, but it's actually '86. So how about that? And then just kind of look at some of the other box office hits from '86. We also had Pretty in Pink. Another John Hughes was number 22. Cobra, the big Stallone movie. Remember, you're the disease yeah. and I'm the cure. That was 15. <laughs> we had Legal Eagles with Redford, Daryl Hannah, Deborah Winger was 14. Stand by Me, classic, classic movie with the kids going to search for the body. Um, that was 13. The Color of Money, another Tom Cruise up there with with Paul Newman. That was 12. And Down Out in Beverly Hills, which has the distinction of being the first ever R-rated Disney movie. The one with the Richard Dreyfuss, Nick Nolte. It was number 11. So. Wow. Well, lots of fun stuff in 1986. We'll revisit that sometime down the road. Uh, how about that? But it's interesting, uh, too, because we kind of circle back to Platoon because we got a little cameo uh, from one of the cast members, one of the prominent cast members of Platoon, actually in this movie that comes a little bit you later correct, on. Sir. But this one is known for Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller, primarily here, uh, along with some of the others uh, that are playing off of him. But he he's obviously the main star. He's the guy that's kind of the ring leader of their little clique that's going to try to ditch school, uh, take the day off, if you will. And we had already been introduced to Matthew Broderick with with War Games uh, just before this, a couple years before this, right? Right, yeah. I mean, he was definitely, he was a known quantity. He was in uh, War Games, and then Lady Hawk was also a big deal from 85 with him and Michelle Pfeiffer. So he was certainly a known quantity. It wasn't like this introduced him to the world or anything. Yes, uh, and obviously we would go on to know him for uh, for what for Glory and uh, Biloxi Blues. Biloxi Blues, correct, as a comedy. And there's one from '89 called Family Business. Did you ever see that one? Did not see that one. It, I was. Gonna... It was one that I I remember seeing it, and it was kind of it was one of those I thought would be so awesome. It's like a family of thieves, basically. It's Sean Connery, Dustin Hoffman, and Matthew Broderick, and it completely bombed at the box office. Like Sidney <laughs> Sidney Lumet directed it. And it, it sounded like it would be really entertaining. And it was okay, but, you know, the, the bang-to-hype ratio didn't quite fit. But um, 
back to his other movies, don't forget he did the voice of Simba in Lion King. There we go. Which is his biggest hit, obviously. I, I mean, thought, I, no, no, know. I thought you were going to go Inspector Gadget as his biggest hit because uh, well, Lion Inspector... King is made 800 and something million. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bigger than Inspector Jay, I'm Gadget. I'm being sarcastic. Guy. I'm being sarcastic here. But, oh, oh, that's I'm, right. Cable that. guy. That's right. Cable guy. Well, and the other thing is Matthew Broderick became much more of a stage actor. Uh, two after this and is uh, uh, has become a Tony Award winning uh, with the producers. Right. We, we had such a long run on Broadway and stuff. So he but I, I, I think it's fair to say that for most whenever you think of film or comedy about Matthew, Bry- it's got to be Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. Right. I would, I would agree for me. It is. I mean, granted, that's that's right in my wheelhouse. You know, it's one of those that came on tv a lot we you know we uh, had our little vhs player back then and recorded it off of showtime i remember showtime having it in fact this is how long ago this was i remember showtime used to have their top 10 exclusives every month and back when we first got cable we had hbo right and then uh, we would get the cable guide and all these good movies are coming on showtime so we had to get it because essentially i guess right. showtime had paramount's contract so if you want to see any of these movies you had to have showtime so I remember having this recorded off Showtime. We watched it quite a bit. Um, another thing I want to mention while we're talking about Matthew Broderick, do you remember from 1987 the car accident he was involved in? Yes. And, so that's, go ahead. and, and who's in the car with him, by the way, in the car Jennifer accident? Gray. Jennifer Gray, who's his sister here in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, is Jeannie. Uh, and it turns out it's a fatal car accident where two others were killed. Broderick was seriously injured. Uh, Jennifer Gray was not seriously injured, but uh, as it turns out, he he didn't do any real jail time. European uh, laws, uh, British Commonwealth laws being what they are, despite two fatalities, him being at fault, he's the wrong way driver in the wrong lane. Uh, yeah, that, that would happen right after this uh, movie and all of his stardom. So, um, yeah, an, an amazing uh, time period, which really it could have completely derailed his career in and around that time. Or, yeah, his life, for that matter. Correct. Like, I've got the the magazine People, you know, People Magazine. I've got their article from back in 1987, and essentially it's saying that he had just finished filming Biloxi Blues, you know, which would come out the following year. And then Jennifer Grey was getting ready to do the publicity for Dirty Dancing. So that hadn't even come out yet. Wow. You know, and when people think of Jennifer Grey, I mean, a lot of us think of her as Jeannie, but I mean, Dirty Dancing is her movie, right? Agreed. Her, her and Patrick Swayze kind of took although, a step to the next Although, level. look, on a comedic, uh, from a comedic standpoint, back to lightening it up, she's tremendous as Jeannie, though, in, in this no, as well. No, she it's did both. great. You know, but and better I mean, known, I agree. Wrong. We know Stallone for hey, Rocky and Rambo. So nobody he puts baby in the corner. You're absolutely right with Jennifer Grey. On, uh, true, true. On that, but yeah, this so this this article is basically saying that um, they they kind of decided to go to Northern Ireland and just take a little vacation and drive and see the the countryside, if you will. In that you know, before she was getting busy and he had just finished. So that's it's just obviously it's really sad. And, and as you mentioned, two two people had died. It was um, they had had a head on collision with a Volvo driven by 28 year old Anna Gallagher, and she and her mother Margaret Doherty, who was 63, were both pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. So it's very, very sad and certainly could have, um, you know, done some had some major ramifications on his life and his career. But, you know, he did he did end up coming out for the better. Obviously, if you look at his his list of movies, he, he kind of didn't he didn't follow up Biloxi Blues with a lot right away. You know, he kind of took he, he kind of slowed down a little bit, if you can tell. Um, Project X was 
Oh, so so, and then he had Glory in '89. So you right. know, the freshman in '90 was pretty good. Did you see that one with him and Marlon Brando? I think I, I think I've seen part of that, but uh, I mean, he did. He had a lot of movies, yeah. uh, obviously, after this, uh, for sure. All right, so let's move on to some other cast members because we get introduced to Alan Ruck in this one, who's Cameron. Uh, when Cameron was in Egypt land, Cameron is actually sick though. He's legitimately sick in the movie as his teenage friend. Meanwhile, Ferris is like, "Look, you can't be sick today. I just I don't want to go to school, and I want to, I want you to go with me on whatever our adventures are." Uh, but uh, it, it, first time really uh, to get to know Alan Ruck a little bit on screen, right? And he was twenty nine years old playing the nineteen <laughs> or sorry, I guess the eighteen or seventeen year old Cameron. So um, <laughs> that that's kind of a fun little note there, um, you know. And he he went on to be in a lot more movies. I you know you saw him in Young Guns too. I always remember him from Speed. Yes. Remember, he's on the, the bus, and he's the one when um, when Keanu Reeves is looking at the bomb, and he's basically doing the relay to Jeff Daniels, and he's like, <laughs> he says, you know, F me, and his response to that is, oh, oh darn. Oh, darn. <laughs> so, but yeah, the be- but no, no, the best, the best is when they're trying to go to the airport as a, as a way to salvage the situation and not get blown up, and he deadpans the line and all the drama, and you're all, you're all wound up, and is the bus going to blow up, and they all going to die, and he says... The airport, and they're looking at him, and they're looking at him, going, "What?" And he goes, "I already seen the airport." I mean, that's that's a great, great line too. And of course, we would later know Alan Ruck from the TV show Spin City, the the weekly comedy, the sitcom. Uh, But he was on like the later. Uh, episodes and a couple later seasons after Michael J. Fox, I think. Michael J. Fox may have crossed over a little bit with him, but Charlie Sheen also uh, became part of Spin City and and Good Buds with Alan Ruck, too, in and around that time. Yeah, I, I didn't watch a ton of that. I the According to our friends on IMDb, he was in, uh, let's see, da, 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 at least two or one, three seasons. Um, he was in six seasons. How about that? Yeah. So it looks... And yeah, that it show like he was in the pilot, so it looks like he was in it all the whole, the whole time. His gotcha. And that Stuart and that Bondi. show, very successful, uh, won won um, Emmy awards for top comedy and Michael J. Fox for top uh, top actor. It was a well known, very popular, very prominent show that that Alan Ruck was part of. But I think it kind of it kind of goes back to Matthew Broderick. If if you look at his body of work, it's inescapable. He's Cameron from from Ferris Bueller's Day Off in the Gordy Howe jersey and wearing the red uh, Red Wings jersey. Yeah, I always wondered about that. Why wasn't he wearing a Blackhawks jersey? Well, do you think he moved from Detroit or something? Or what, I it, what the interesting? I don't. I don't have. We have to maybe di- dive into why John Hughes would do that. Of course, you mentioned Christmas Vacation, which would come out years later, uh, where Clark is constantly in the Stan Makita jersey or in the Griswold jersey. Right? It's Griswold that it says on the back of his jersey too. Uh, that's in the white Blackhawks jersey. So. Uh, but obviously the big rivalry in the NHL and hockey of Chicago and Detroit, Cameron's a Gordie Howe fan. As when he- there was another movie came out, I believe, in 86, about last night with Rob Lowe and Demi Moore and James Belushi. And Belushi wore the Al Secord jersey the, we- almost the whole time. And that one was there set in go. Chicago as well. So the old uh, Red Wing Blackhawk rivalry uh, rearing on that. All right, what about Mia Sarah as Sloan Peterson? Uh, the girlfriend. The beautiful Mia Sarah. She did a great job in this. Is long, I thought. Now, don't tell me that she was like twenty-seven years old playing teenage. No, I think she was eighteen. I believe. Okay, good enough. I believe she was right at the age. She had. She'd only made one movie before that. It was the Tom Cruise movie Legend, and this was her second film to ever appear in. And um, if you kind of look through her career, she didn't have a lot of of other huge hits. This is probably what 
I'd say most people know her best for. Um, yes. She was in Time Cop with Van Damme, which I know now we kind of look at Van Damme and shake our head. But back then he was a pretty big star and that was the number one movie when it opened. So, you know, she played his wife and and it's like I said, Van Damme is just kind of turned into a punchline to, to a lot of people. But, you know, back then, I mean, I enjoyed his movies when he had Universal Soldier and Bloodsport and, and Time Cop. I mean, I enjoyed those. And I remember seeing Time Cop in a packed theater and it had a, a couple of good wrinkles. Ron Silver played a really good villain in that. So. You know, it's not not like she totally disappeared, but she uh, definitely her high point of her career, I would say, would be um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. A funny one, because I was in college in and around this time, uh, and I still remember watching with my grandmother, who loved the Hallmark Channel, as does now my mom, my wife, and all the females love the Hallmark. I think it was a Hallmark movie. It may not have been the Hallmark Channel. I don't know if there was a Hallmark cable channel back then. She was in one of those Hallmark movies. Uh, I, I want to say it's the I'm looking at her her bio. I want to say it's the 1989 miniseries Till We Meet Again. And I kept seeing her and I'm thinking she's Sloan Peterson. She's got to be Sloan. And so I would make cracks during the Hallmark movie while I'm having to endure this where I would go Sloan Peterson just out loud to myself. Whenever I'm she would sure they loved that. Too, the, didn't they? And they, they had no idea what I was talking about. My grandmother. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there there was Mia Sarah in that. But I I would agree. This is this is what she's known for. Um, and actually, uh, Sloan has gone to school that day, and Ferris and Cameron have to go get her out. They have to sign her out to go take part in all the fun they're going to have uh, while ditching school. Um, all right, who else do we want to mention on the cast? Uh, Jeffrey Jones as Ed Rooney chasing down these delinquents, these truant students. Uh, we got to talk about him a little bit, Ed Rooney. Yeah, you know, I thought he did um, he did a really good job in this movie. You know, obviously in real life he was arrested for possession of child pornography and right. soliciting a seventeen year old boy for for nude photos. So there's, he's in in real life it makes this kind of creepy that he's a principal in this movie. But we'll just kind of you know for, like we try to do a lot of these movies, we kind of take you know the entertainment set aside to itself. He you know he was obviously obsessed with trying to catch Ferris, you know, and there, some of the greatest lines and best parts of the entire movie is the interaction with him and Grace. Yes. You know, when he says he wouldn't trust him any further than he can throw him, and she's like, well, you shouldn't throw anyone with your bad knee or whatever. Edie McClurg, <laughs> and, yeah. absolutely tremendous as the secretary is Grace with the one-liners. I mean, perfect, perfect foil to make you laugh with John Hughes uh, and any of the other comedic writers that were writing in parts for her, especially the part where she's like sniffing the white out, trying oh, yeah. to get a little high. Paper. Off the white out, and of course Jennifer Grey comes in early on in the day uh, because her Who's brother's not at school. Now? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Who's bothering you now, Jeannie? She's great, and of course Ed is tr- Ed is trying to catch Ferris red-handed, and and uh, Grace, the secretary, doesn't quite know what to do. So they're they're perfect for each other. Well, and you that. know the, some of the iconic lines. This movie gets quoted a lot. You know, it might not be to the degree of Fletch and Caddyshack, some of those we've done in the past, maybe even. Um, I, I don't know. For me, I would probably say Caddyshack is the most quoted for me, just because being in the golf area. Well, but lot, you know, I mean, sixteen. Those, we did this. Certainly, get it gets quoted a lot. We did this with sixteen candles. We did this with the Breakfast Club. There are so many great lines. Does Barry Manilow know you raid his wardrobe? Or in sixteen candles, she went to get maddied. Yeah, maddied. Uh, you know. Uh, so the the, the Hughes movies you know, in this one. Nine times. <laughs> He's been caught. <laughs> Anytime nine, nine, times, nine, times. Was, nine times. Nine times. Nine times. Yes. So there are 
There are good lines, but yeah. Well, and then Rudy, another really good one was when he's at the, um, I guess he's at the arcade and the girl is just spit coke on him because he thought she was Ferris. <laughs> and um, and he goes over to the counter and, and it's the the Cubs game. And he's like, you know, what's the score? He says, nothing, nothing. He's like, who's winning? And the guy looks at him like, the Bears. The Bears. He finally just puts <laughs> yeah. that out there. In fact, that's going to come up here in a little bit when we talk with our special guest who's joining us uh, about Chicago and Chicago sports life. I'm looking forward to talking with the Mike North in a couple of moments. But are we good uh, for the cast, I think we pretty well covered. I mean, Lyman Ward is the father playing Tom Bueller. Well, Cindy Pickett, who yeah, I real knew. quick, let's mention Lyman yeah. Ward and Cindy Pickett because they got married in real life after this. Movie. Now, that this is where I love the famous Jay with the trivia nuggets. That is something like Johnny Carson. That is I think something more people know that than not. I don't think that's I, that, that cool. That is something way, I know, did not know. The two of them got married after this and were divorced in 92. Uh, Lyman Ward was the original Jim Walsh on Beverly Hills Now 2 and 0. He was replaced after like the first episode, well, partially because people thought he was Ferris's dad. There you go. The and I knew I knew Cindy Pickett because I had watched the dramatic, the dramatic series St. Elsewhere, which we've talked about from time to time on this show, and she was a recurring character on that. But I would say the same thing again for Lyman Ward or Cindy Pickett. Whatever else they do, they're Ferris Bueller's mom and dad from from this movie. Right, and you'd mentioned Charlie Sheen was in this one. He, you know, when we talked about Platoon a minute ago, he's in. He's got a almost like a cameo. He's a, yes. in the police station towards the end. Whenever uh, Jeannie gets picked up for a phony phone call, um, <laughs> you also have Christy Swanson, who's the girl, basically you know, the, a friend of mine whose girlfriend knows, you know, the, the, yep. saw him at 31 Flavors last night. You know, she went on to be a big star from the uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, amongst many other things. So there's in Ben Stein, win Ben Stein's money on was it a Bueller. Yeah, Bueller. he's the, the economics teacher who explains voodoo economics to the kids. Something <laughs> OO economics. <laughs> he's calling so. he's calling roll though, and there is no Bueller and there's no Fry. Fry. There's <laughs> neither one of them are there. Uh well, well harkening back to Fletch real quick too, I want to mention the um the guys in the garage that take the Ferrari for Joyride. One of them is Larry Flash Jenkins, the other one Richard Edson, but Larry Flash Jenkins we know from Fletch. That's played correct. Gummy. Played Gummy and so. recently and recently passed away. But yeah, those are the two movies he's known for, including the epic scene uh, with the Ferrari being airborne as they as they tool around in it at high speed. And it was around Star there. Wars music. <laughs> Tremendous on that. So we pretty well have covered the cast. I think the audience, for the most part, knows the premise of the movie is that Ferris and his friends, his friend Cameron, his girlfriend Sloan, are trying to ditch school. They're taking the day off. Uh, when they're supposed to be in school. And so it's the travails of them hopping around downtown Chicago uh, instead of being at school. And whether or not Ed Rooney, the uh, the assistant principal, or the he's, is he the principal or the assistant principal? I'm always fuzzy on that. I think he's the dean of students. The dean of students. So that, he's on uh, the chase. Richard Vernon was the assistant <laughs> principal at Brain the Breakfast Club. And I believe those are the same schools, no? Is it the same uh, you, school? You might, we might need to look into that, whether Shermer it was High School, uh, Shermer, Shermer High School, Shermer, Illinois, that we talked about in the Breakfast Club. But yeah, so he's chasing Ferris around, trying to bust him, trying to catch him in the act of ditching. Uh, so that is, the, uh, that is the premise of the movie. So are you ready to talk some more about Chicago and, and more about this movie, Jay Betzel? I'm so ready. Let's call him. 
Let's have some fun. Let's talk more about Ferris Bueller's Day Off with a colleague of mine. I am proud to call him uh, part of my broadcasting alumni friends, uh, formerly with Fox Sports Radio with me. We were both formerly with Fox Sports Radio, but much bigger deal with the score in Chicago. Great personality to this day in Chicago radio and TV sports. And he was chomping at the bit Jay Petzl. When I said, come talk Chicago and Ferris Bueller's Day Off with me, he said, when? What time? What time? When? Let's go. <laughs> Mike North is here with us on We've Seen That. Northy! How are you guys? It's great to talk to you. It's great to talk to both of you. I'll tell you what, I, I was psyched up about this because there's some myths and some legends and some untruths about the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I know that you guys are diving into it, man. Uh, yeah, we're having fun with this. All right, so let's let's get right into it because we just made mention the premise of the movie is they're skipping school and they're going and enjoying a lot of Chicago and prominently downtown uh, Chicago. So we're big fans of all of John Hughes's movies, the comedies like Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Christmas Vacation. All of them have kind of the Chicago setting. Were you a fan of Ferris Bueller's Day Off back in the day or even now, Mike North? I was happy that it was shot there. I'm happy that tons of people love it. But as far as Chicago movies go, it wasn't one of my favorites. Can I watch it? Do I sit through it? Absolutely. Can I identify with it? I'm a high school dropout that used to cut school all the time and go downtown, go to the beach. I used to go to the racetrack when I was 16, Arlington, Arlington Park. So, so yeah, I identified with the movie and every kid did what those guys did, especially there's a, a scene, you know, we used to cut school to go to St. Patrick's Day Parade, which was down State Street. Uh, and, and, and so what they did, most Chicago kids and most kids all over the country have done, guys. So uh, I really think that Thief was a better Chicago movie. I know, I know we don't want to get another movie, but the Blues Brothers, but as far as popularity by the masses, Ferris Bueller's Day's Day off is one of the biggest, and I'm not going to deny up that place. Well, so another thing that uh, that we want to cover is they go and hit a lot of the high spots in and around downtown right. Chicago. They go up to Sears Tower. They're eventually at mm-hmm. Wrigley Field. Uh, they're they're in and around a lot of the things. So you see a lot of Chicago. Uh, in this movie, which uh, for me, for example, I'm a teenager watching this. I had never been to Chicago, so these look like pretty cool things. It was it was almost like uh, a board of tourism type thing, too. Hey, come see Chicago in the summertime, at least for teenage kids. It was kind of like that for yeah. me, Mike. Absolutely, and then that's what the that, and if you're on the board of tourism, the Chamber of Commerce of Chicago. Uh, even now, that movie is gold because not much has changed. You still have Marina City. You still have uh, the State Lake Theater. You still have Chicago Theater. You have Wrigley Field, of course, which has been tremendously upgraded. I think if you went uh, to Wrigley Field now uh, from 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 back then, you wouldn't even recognize the place as far as the surroundings and stuff. Uh, it's a piece of history that's never going to go away. We knew about, and not many people, excuse me, knew about that house in the middle of the woods out there. Uh, it, they, they had been trying to sell it for years. The movie, you know, the hit movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So the, when the car went into went off the uh, off the house ramp, it was just it was just a fun movie. And people lived vicariously. And you're right, Teach. If you've never been to Chicago, you couldn't find a better 
you couldn't find a better tourist uh, trap, if you will, to drag people in. And Mike, I want to let you know, I, as embarrassing as this sounds, I've been to L.A. ten times. I've been to New York a handful of times. I've never been to Chicago. Oh, and growing oh. up, I had WGN, so I got to watch the Cubs. I got to root for Andre Dawson and Lee Smith and the crew and you know Leon Durham, et cetera, and Ryan Sandberg, you name it. I remember them all. In fact, I remember Jody Davis. You know, so uh, watching the WGN Cubs telecast, I felt a little Chicago in my heart, and I've promised myself whenever I go, because I will get to go, that I'm going to do a little Ferris Bueller's Day Off thing. I'm going to go to the Art Institute. I'm going to go to Wrigley Field and see the Cubs play, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But for someone who has never been to Chicago, is there some stuff that's been added since Ferris Bueller that I should add to my, my trip? Well, you know what? First of all, if you do the Ferris Bueller trip, you're set. I mean, basically, you're going to be hitting a lot of the hot spots. So it doesn't, you know what, it doesn't matter. So, so if you've never been there, if you just take that trip, you're going to just, you're going to love it. Just like the people take the hangover trip now in Vegas. To well, Vegas, they, right. Yeah, not the real, the actual tripping that they did, but the trip. And they do the, the, the spots. They go to Caesars Palace. They go to the chapel. The same thing for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So that's all you really need as far as things being added. Oh, there's been a lot added since since the 80s there. But the pertinent spots, which is beautiful, like, like Pete says, are still there. The reason that that movie is is so great is because the spots that are in that movie are still there. If you see another movie, for instance, Midnight Run, they do some Chicago scenes, but two or three of the places are gone now. So it's a whole different ballgame. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mr. Hughes knew the area, of course, from Home Alone and everything else that he's done and, and using Chicago as his backdrop. Uh, so he knew what to shoot, what would have an enduring quality, and, and what landmarks would stick out. Well, following up on that, we did another one in Chicago movie, The Fugitive, where yes, the, yes. the direction is amazing with the uh, the views from above downtown Chicago. And obviously, I probably don't want to mi- visit too many places that Dr. Kimball went hiding. You know, that, <laughs> I probably leave that off of my tourist trip. But, well, I mean, I've been it, to the those Hilton. movies make me want to go there. Yeah, I've been to the Hilton where they had uh, where the where the crooked uh, the doctor gave the yep, speech. You know, right. you've been you know you've been on the L train. I've been to the cemetery. I've been to uh, you know a lot of the places. Uh, U.S. Marshals do the same yep. thing. Uh, a, a lot of the places. There's no bigger kick if you're proud, and I'm proud of my the city I grew up in. Um, there's no better kick than. And what's funny is a lot of my friends were the reporters in that movie that are actual reporters. Uh, Jay Levine from CBS, John Drummond from CBS, uh, a lot of the actual reports. I think Lester Holt, who yes. now is the big time with today's show, yes. in there. So, so a lot of uh, the people that we knew and followed, actually, you had actual news people in the actual uh, crunch scene, the press uh, scene uh, that Tommy Lee Jones gave. When he channeled his inner Bill Belichick and didn't give him anything? Yeah, right. Don't tell him anything. Yeah, absolutely. When he didn't say much of anything. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a beautiful... And what's cool is where they went and found the one dude that they thought was the guy that was the murderer. I, I think it was the one-armed man. I mean, we know that neighborhood. You saw the church. So it, it's cool. And there's a lot... You know, the movie business in Chicago is big, but also the movie tourist business where they'll take you around to see where... Uh, uh, the breakup was with Jennifer Aniston there and, you go. And, and some other things. So city, going to movies where your city is in is cool for the people that live there, but it's even cooler 
for the, like I said, the tourist type of situation that you have. Love this stuff from Mike North. Again, you can follow him on social media, North to North. He is still knocking around doing a bunch of stuff in Chicago, which we'll let him promote coming up. National stuff with Fox Sports Radio for many years, as Northy and I would work Saturday nights on Fox Sports Radio. He was always Jim McMahon to my Walter Payton. He'd turn around and hand it off to me for late night on Fox Sports Radio every Saturday night. So speaking of... It was a good experience, man. We we had a blast. We had a blast. Mike. It was, those shows were grind, but they were good grind. It was weekend shows. I remember we did the Sunday shows during the actual football game oh, yeah. that was going on. So, you know, we had to keep on our toes and stuff like that. So, you know, I give those weekend guys a lot of credit. No no doubt. I always love me some Mike North. Okay, so let's go back to the time period here in the 1980s because you, you made mention you were operating hot dog stands. And Mike is a phenomenal right. success story because he turned that into becoming one of the top sports figures on the air, on the radio, on TV in Chicago. But in this time period in the 1980s, uh, obviously the Bears had won the Super Bowl while the movie was being shot the year before the movie came out. The Cubs had the near miss in 84 of going to the playoffs and and then losing out to the San Diego Padres. As a sports town for Chicago, take us back to the 80s, because I I love the fact that Ferris and Cameron and Sloan go to a Cubs game. But what was it like being in and around Chicago in the 1980s for a a Chicago sports fan? Well, I'll give you a perfect example. When I had my hot dog scenes, and I had three different ones, and they were on the northwest side of Chicago, I always built them across the street from McDonald's because I had food that they didn't have. I figured McDonald's took the survey. It has to be a busy area. Plus, I knew the areas because I grew up my whole life in Chicago. But my best year ever, guys, my best two years ever were 84 and 85. And I was in the business from 77 to 93. But it was because of winning. The Chicago Bears, people couldn't wait to come into the stand. And and I had great years, but this was where everybody was in a positive mood. We had an undefeated football team. We right. had uh, a team that was unstoppable. People wanted to come, talk Bears with me, talk about, uh, you know, talk about Peyton, talk about McMahon, talk about Covert, talk about the fridge. I had my hot dog stand with, with uh, uh, posters of the Bears and, and of, of sports figures. So it was a popular place. Plus, that's where they picked up some of the parlay cards that I had uh, available also. <laughs> I'd like to do, you know, the statute of limitations is out now. But I'll, I'll tell you what was even greater, and it was just the 35th anniversary of the Ryan Sandberg two-home run game against Bruce Souter, the toughest yep. relief pitcher of his time. I It was a Saturday afternoon. Bob Costas was doing the game of the week. I had a TV, and the place was a little portable TV. There were no flat screens. We had the shelf with the portable. We had 15 people. It was a Saturday in the stand. Nobody left 10th inning. Pow! This guy had two home runs in a row, made him the Hall of Fame. And those two years, the Cubs in 84, and then the Bears right into the next year, just were absolutely outstanding. And then to just piggyback off Ferris Bueller's day off, uh, that that's another example uh, when, when you see something like that. And, and you know what? So Chicago was for that brief period, guys, because they, they weren't winning every single year. For those two years, it's about as much fun and as much business as people ever did because people couldn't wait to get out, especially with the 85 Bears. Love it. 
Love it. So we already touched on, there is the scene where Ed Rooney, where the dean of students, where Jeffrey Jones, the actor, the redheaded actor, is looking for Ferris. He goes to the arcade. He thinks he spots Ferris. It's actually a woman. She spits the coke through the straw on him. He goes over to dry himself off, and the Cubs game is on one of those little TVs, like you're talking about, maybe a 10-inch screen sitting on the counter, so we can totally visualize now exactly what you were saying about your hot dog stands. The Cubs game is on, and and this, this became such a big deal to big followers of the movie that people began to try to research what Cubs-Braves game was this, and they've now actually identified the game. It is believed to be a June 1985 Atlanta Braves-Chicago Cubs game that's being shown on the TV because of the batter Claudel Washington fouling the ball off. Leon Durham, Mike knows these names, the famous first yep. baseman, the Bull, was at first base. They show him. So everybody identifies that game, they believe, as June of 1985. But it is cool because, you know, Ed looks away from the TV screen when the ball is fouled off and Ferris catches the ball. And then there's the quick cameo of John mm-hmm. Hughes and the filmmakers out in the left field line, out in the left field third baseline stands with Matthew Broderick and Alan Ruck. And Mia Sarah, they're in the stands at Wrigley Field. I love I love that little part of this movie, the little taste of Wrigley Field. Yeah, and you know what? They, the movie makers have found out, guys, that, that the Cubs are a good copy. If you watch The Breakup, which is one of my favorite movies with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn, when they're fighting over the TV and he's going to watch, it's all Cub highlights. It's Kerry Wood uh, pitching. So... So the Cubs, if you watch a lot of Vince Vaughn stuff with the uh, with swingers, uh, he's playing hockey and he's <laughs> Ronick, and the other guy is Gretzky. Uh, so he, uh, Harold Ramis was the same way who went to my same high school. We were good friends. Did a lot of Chicago stuff. So uh, you know what? The movie makers that come from here, friends of mine like William Peterson and and Joe Montagna, good guys. They never forget where they came from. In fact, those guys were in the original Bleacher Bums, where basically when you see them in the stands, that's taken from any Bleacher Bum play that you've ever seen, uh, them being in the stands. And everybody knows that type of situation, Teach, because everybody's been in the stands. Everybody's been in that position. Who didn't cut school? We cut school once, and we went to Comiskey (laughs) Park. We went. We cut school once and went to Comiskey Park. Me and my three buddies. Little did we know, at the old Comiskey Park in right field, there was the auxiliary scoreboard that was on the facade of the upper deck. Well, we were sitting above it, so every time they showed the score, we duck. I mean, at the end of every inning, because we were afraid our parents were going to see us. So, so everybody, there's been people that have cut that were afraid. How many times you've been somewhere you go? Where there's cameras, you go, oh, I hope there's no camera here. You know what I'm saying? That's how it was. I love it. I love it. Uh, what hey, else, guys, Jay I've, Betzel? I have one fun note I want to mention about that game on MLB.com. I was talking about it, that um, Chicago actually lost the game, 4-2 to two in 11 mm-hmm. innings. But listen to this note. Um, Scott Sanderson was the starter. He went 10 innings with 10 strikeouts. <laughs> and Lee oh, Smith yeah. came in and gave up a two-run homer to Rafael Ramirez from the Braves. Wow. And Dale Murphy was from the Braves even tweeted out, looks like I should have taken a day off on the Ferris Bueller's day off because I went 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. Oh, boy. But- yeah, and Claudel Washington ended up playing for the White Sox uh, where the infamous banner uh, in right field was unfurled while he was out there. Washington slept here. So, uh... You know, it didn't work out for him. 
Yeah, there's a lot of connections there, guys. Well, the interesting, I did see one other blurb. The interesting thing is Hughes had originally toyed Mike North with the idea of shooting the baseball scenes at Comiskey Park, but he knew what Jay said and what we knew uh, is that WGN introduced the Cubs all over the country on cable in 1980, so it would be a much more identifiable thing to be at a Cubs game. More of the country would identify with the Cubs, so they, they worked it out. Uh, oh, here's a clever note too. Just that would one... have been a mistake if they went to the right. White Sox game. Right, it's, absolutely. It worked better with the Cubs. But here's one more note about it that on the cutaway, I just saw this. The cutaway is actually uh, Hughes admitted this in the director's cut. The cutaway is from a September separate game with the Montreal Expos, where you only briefly see in the background after he's caught the foul ball the blue jerseys of the Expos. <laughs> that's not actually the same game, but that's okay. I mean. It, it all still works. This is what this is what sports fans do, though. We meticulously go and research everything. But he, they actually came and shot that in September of '85 um, in the stands in the left field, the left field corner stands of Wrigley Field. But I again, uh, that is something that we uh, that we identify with. Um, what else, Mike North? Do we want to say here, joking around about uh, Ferris Bueller's day off and ditching school, and, and eventually it leads to the big confrontation uh, back in in the home uh, where Ed Rooney shows up at the house and gets knocked unconscious at the house, and Ferris has got to race back home and beat his parents back home. It's a fun movie for us. What else do you want to say about it? Anything else? Well, yeah, I, the one thing that will always be, you know, you know, is I think that Hughes did one of the best jobs, and there's been plenty of movies shot in Chicago, plenty. So I thought they did a good job with the Blues Brothers, bringing in some local flavor. I think I think they've done job, good jobs in others, but nobody captured the spirit of Chicago, the uh, uh, the taste of Chicago, if you will, the ethnicity of Chicago, if you will, than I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think he got it. I think that what really happens is, I think that the actual... Acting is good, but I think the star is the city. I think the star of that movie is the city, and the kids are the co-stars uh, with Rooney and the rest of them. So, so uh, I, that's what I would say: that the city was the big major backdrop, and and that and that they. I think if they shoot it somewhere else, I don't think it's the same movie. I really don't. I think that uh, it, 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 it's easy for me to say now, right? But I mean, it's it, it's been around for a long, long time for a reason, and I don't think it's because of the acting chops of Matthew Broderick. That's just my <laughs> opinion. He was a good it. Ferris Bueller. They were all good, uh, but I think it was just the, the writing. Chicago's the I big winner. It, it was that. It was writing, and it was the backdrop. Let me ask you this real quick. You mentioned the house earlier, Cameron's house. Has anybody ever bought that? And kind of like, where is it? I read something about being Highland Park. Is that North Shore area, or where would that be? Yeah, and it's off the beaten path. In other words, it, you know, it's not off the expressway, as you can tell. I mean, uh, I guess a wealthy man, and you got built it a long time ago. But you know what? Uh, the house has been up and down for sale for years. I don't know what its recent vintage is. If somebody, I think somebody has bought it. Or, you know, I don't know. Was it just destroyed? I'm trying to remember. One note that I see, if I can interject, one note that I see says it was eventually sold in 2014, but you might be right. Whoever it is might have torn it down, and that's happened in some other movies with some other houses where somebody buys it and tears it down. Absolutely, but I think it might still be there. They never had trouble selling it. And what was the big selling point, guys? Because it's just, to me, it's a weird house. 
I wouldn't want to live there. I thought it was cool when you were younger. But to me, the selling point is it was in the movie. That's it. Oh, yeah. That's right. And it's, it has the big car showroom uh, that's up there. Right. All right, a couple, couple more fun ones for you because as sure. things have obviously evolved, the Cubs eventually won the World Series. It's, a, it's easy to say after the fact. Was there a point in time in the 90s, in the early 2000s, where Mike North, the sports host, Mike North, the Chicago lifer, Mike North, the Chicago sports fan, had just resigned himself to, they're never going to be able to win it. Did you ever... At some point in those decades, just finally say they're never going to be able to win a World Series in my lifetime. Yes. And my mother, who was 90, was resigned to that fact, too. Uh, because she had lived through the first uh, 88 years, <laughs> or 87 years, without it. I mean, at that point, if you're 87 years old, you're saying to yourself, it's never going to happen. I mean, yep. I'm a depression, she's a depression kid, and they never won it. Think about that, you know? So, I mean, Roosevelt was, was, was driving down the street. She was like, you know, she's gone, Cubs are going to win. No, they weren't. So, um, I think a lot of people did. The thing that was crazy about when the Cubs won it is I'm more of a White Sox fan, but my right. brothers, my uncles, and everybody are Cubs fans. And what's what happened with the Cubs' first World Series, guys, uh, since 1908, was that everybody stayed home to watch the games. Uh, they basically didn't go out and party. There was no, hey, World Series parties. They all stayed with older family members. I lost my Uncle Joe, who was uh, 75 years old, lifelong Cup fan, dies three months before the, the World Series. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and people visited cemeteries. You thought of your families, your aunts, your uncles, your great aunts and uncles who had been preaching to you since you were a child how great the Cubs were, and they were no longer here to see it. So that's what I think was the major thing that I saw um, once they did win it. But yeah, I never thought they were going to put it together. And you know what? Uh, I don't know if they'll ever win another one because I'm starting to get the feeling they might be 85 bears. I'm starting to get that feeling. One, one and done. One. one and done. Yeah. Hey, but well, brother, yeah, they got the up. one. They got the one. A hundred well, years later, they counts. got the one. They eventually that's got one. That's all that counts. That's <laughs> all that counts. You're hey, right. That, hey, Mike, I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so we've never had anything quite like this. We had the Rangers in the World Series where if Nelson Cruz had caught the fly ball, it would have been over and we'd have beaten the Cardinals. And by we, I mean mm-hmm. the Rangers. <laughs> but what what was it like? Just kind of tell me the Steve Bartman stuff. What was that like up there? Was it as bad as it seemed from afar? Well, Steve Bartman, let me tell you what I tried to do, because uh, it was my angle to try to get him. And I was on the air at the time, very, very prominently, and uh, I knew where he worked, and I sent him, uh, it was out in Northbrook, and I had a buddy of mine, he coached his, his kid in Little League. Bartman oh, coached wow. his kid. So then I sent uh, my producer out there, Jen Patterson, and she went out to, to where he worked, and she saw him come and leave and work. And she went up to him. He says, call, have my call my lawyer. I love his show. I go, okay, here we go. I call the lawyer. He says, Mike, he's not doing it for anybody. He said he loves you, but he's not doing it for anybody because it was my contention. That was the interview, probably a top five interview of all time in sports mm. at that point. But nobody got it. And I, I, I really give the kid credit for having a lawyer be polite to people. He's not going to do it. I thought he'd break down. He was offered vacations. He was offered everything. 
and uh, he didn't take any of it. He's living a quiet life. He's never cashed in on it, and it was unfair what happened to him. Moises Alou doesn't throw a tantrum. I don't think Moises Alou to this day might have caught the ball. It was borderline in the seats. Uh, so, uh, But if he had nothing now, that would never happen, and one of the great times in baseball history would be out the window. So um, enjoy it while you can because that was something else, but that kid got pillaged for no oh, yeah. reason. And by the way, Dusty Baker never went out to pull prior during the seventh inning, never went out to talk to him. Uh, Gonzalez makes the error at shortstop. They blamed this kid for the whole thing, and it was the Cubs. It is the it is the Cubs and Mike Why did North. Why bring that up? Well, Why did you I, Jay, bring that up? Oh, Jay brought it up. Hey, I, I'll I was bring morbidly it, curious. I, I'll bring morbidly. it back around to they finally <laughs> won one. It took another 13 years for 2016, but they finally did win one. Yep. Uh, for the Cubs. And the lovable Cubs, again, are intertwined in the movie uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. All right, Northy, plug away because fans love hearing you. We appreciate you popping on the podcast, but where can we no find problem. you? Where can we hear you? Go ahead. Well, I have a, I have a wagering and gambling show, Carmen DeFalco. Uh, you can pick us up around the country on iHeart, but ESPN 1000 every Friday night from 6 to 7 in the great city of Chicago, and then Saturday morning, Encore, uh, from uh, from eight till nine, you can pick it up on iHeartRadio. Plus, I have a podcast Mondays and uh, Wednesdays. I'm taking off today. Be back Wednesday with Vegas scores and odds. I do handicapping, and I do a show on handicapping. Their families, the next big frontier. Uh, even though what's funny, guys, is you know they say it's coming out of the shadows. Hell. Somebody forgot to tell me in 1970. I mean, I've been dabbling for like 50 years, but it was in the shadows. You know what I mean? So it's all coming out now, and uh, I'm having a great time. And, of course, be doing podcasts with you is a lot of fun today, yep. too. So I had a great time. Well, and Bears uh, Bar Room, right, will be back this fall. You're always knocking around talking Chicago well, Bears, Bears on that. Bar Room, by the way, is, is produced is on Monday nights at the Mike North Advantage, and then the Mike North Advantage is sponsored by uh, Vegas scores and odds on the Bears Barroom Network with Aldo Gandhi on Wednesdays. How about that? So he's talking bears in the I fall. Think I just do what I want to do. I love that about you. And this guy's a big movie buff. Uh, I'm oh, talking yeah. about like 50s, 60s. Uh, oh. he, shadow box with the best. Right, give me, give me top five Mike North movies before 1970. I'll just, I'll, I'll give you a second to think. Well, right, before 1970, go. Give me five. Go. All right, I'll give you some real quick. It's something that you wouldn't expect. Double indemnity with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanley. Can't Great that one out. <laughs> Key, yeah, Key Largo with Edward G. Robinson, yep. Humphrey Bogart, uh, uh, Claire Trevor, one of the greats, Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, 1935. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Citizen Kane, only for the uh, uh, the camera work, the angles, was was introduced by the genius Orson Welles. Plus, it's basically about Randolph Hearst, shot in 1941. And then, last but not least, if you've never seen it, you got to see it once. It was the godfather of its time, Gone with the Wind with the great Clark Gable, who I've grown yep. more affectionate of because I was an Errol Flynn guy. But Clark Gable, there's a reason he was the king. Uh, plus, there's other great movies. I can name you a million of them, but those are my five right now. How about this man is a machine, and he's a movie guy <laughs> and a sports guy. North to North on Twitter, by the way, for Mike North. Uh, check into him. It is such a treat to have you Thanks, on. Guys. 
uh, here on the on the We've Seen That podcast. Jay Betzel, this has been a blast to have Mike North hanging out with us. Absolutely. Fun stuff. In fact, I may even uh, fast forward my trip to Chicago so I can come up there and visit you. <laughs> North, you North will what? be your tour guide. Yeah, take Jay. Just just spend some money and take a flight over. By the way, you guys are in Florida. Am I right or wrong? Are Jay is in Texas, in right? Dallas. Jay's in Texas. I'm in Florida. Go ahead. What do you? What, can I just say one thing? I don't want to get you in trouble, teacher, because I was good at that. Every try trying to walk into a door every so often. What is a Tampa? What what is this? We're going to play half our games in Montreal, half our games in Tampa. Hey, I, I like a, I like the suggestion. Move? You know what? Somebody made another suggestion. Forget about half the games in Montreal. Why don't you play half the games at Comiskey in Chicago and have this and, and have the Chicago have the the White Sox and the Rays merge together? So maybe the Rays could just be a touring traveling team like back in the in the 20th century in the mid 20th they still would draw 35,000 exactly exactly well baseball hey look i love you listen baseball forever intertwined and ingrained in us it's inter it's ingrained in ferris bueller and mike north is as big a sports personality as there is in chicago thank you michael north you're welcome guys you take good care of yourselves not quite sure how we follow that up, Jay Betzel. Uh, but again, uh, he's a big movie guy, too, as we were saying at the end of the conversation. And, and as we turned it towards uh, what it did for Chicago, I can't emphasize enough, there are people everywhere uh, that were introduced to Chicago through this movie. And I, I don't think that can be overstated to want to go and reenact, go stand up on the top of the Sears Tower as uh, Ferris and Cameron and Sloan do and lean out and look down <laughs> down below at how high up you are. No, for sure. And like I even mentioned when we, we were talking to him, is I'd love to go and kind of do the Ferris Bueller's Day Off tour, if you will. And I'm sure with the way the world is now, there's probably multiple travel agencies you can ask and they would probably hook it up. Well, he was if mentioning. If not, maybe we should look into that. <laughs> sure, he was mentioning the parade uh, that was filmed during the movie, and uh, that is an actual parade that they kind of crashed. And this, you know, this is also he was mentioning. When we were talking the fugitive. You mentioned the fugitive. That's the St. Patrick's Day parade, but they they crashed one of the prominent uh, parades in the movie. Uh, and, and Matthew Broderick said most of what you're seeing in that is just complete improv. And, and the interesting thing is the scene on the, in the, on the float when they're doing Shake It Up, uh, Baby, um, Twist and Twist Shout, uh, they're doing it in silence, by the way, where, where the filmmakers and John Hughes would say go and everybody's dancing like that and there's no song playing. There's nothing playing. They're hmm. just he's, he's lip syncing the words. And they're dancing around him, and there's no music playing when they were there at the parade. <laughs> so they had to do good method acting um, as, uh, as part of that. All right, so to bring it back here to the script, I remember seeing this movie in the theater. We hadn't talked about that. You mentioned taping it. I remember seeing this movie in the theater. I kept being concerned as a teenager that Ed Rooney's going to catch Ferris, that, that Cameron's going to get away, Sloan's going to get away, and that becomes the big race at the end. Did you have the feeling the first time that you watched this that Ferris was going to get caught. What about it, Jay Betzel? No, I thought he was going to make it because I thought the whole thing was a fantasy, and there's no way the good guy's going to get caught. Remember, I was, so, wasn't very very old when I saw this. Well, theater, right. So I still believed, I, and I wasn't the cynical person I turned into. <laughs> <laughs> Later on in life. But, you know, you, you remember whether it's your parents, whether it's the teachers or those that are in charge at school, whatever adults that you're around that are in charge, 
they they're ultimately going to catch you whether you're, whether you're cheating on some. I love the Mike North story. They would ditch. They'd go sit in the upper deck of the old Comiskey Park, and it was right by the scoreboard. And as the inning went in, they would hide. I love that for the fear of not being shown on TV when they're showing the scoreboard uh, out in the game. You always had quite the assumption, and of course there is there are a couple of brushes where uh, where obviously Ferris is in the same restaurant with his dad. What's the line? 5,000 restaurants in the downtown Chicago area. I pick the one my dad goes to. Where they've got Pretty to, much. They've got to escape and get, and get away they're from him. They're trying to jump in the cab while he's talking to the guy he's trying to sell something to. Well, right. And so they end up uh, they end up being able to escape that way. And of course, they're at the game and uh, and Ed doesn't see them at the game because he looks down uh, in, in the uh, in the arcade. Um a great one, and then and then of course, Dooley, you've got Genie chasing him too and trying to bust him because he gets away with everything at home, uh, and this is even the the part where uh, she's explaining herself to Charlie Sheen in the cameo in the police station when she gets caught for making the phony phone call. You know why why should he get to ditch when I have to go to school? And so Charlie Sheen, the druggie, looks at her and says, "Why do you care if he ditches? Because he always gets away with it." And so well, I think a lot of that goes to. You know, when you're young, so much of the world revolves around you and you, you don't realize that there's bigger things out there. Like, remember so many times in high school when a boyfriend or a girlfriend would break up or whatever, it was just the end of the world. And then when you got out of high school, you realize that that's just such a small microcosm of things. And most of what happened in high school doesn't really matter. You know, but while you're in it, you, you don't realize that you you're in the moment, you know, and I think that's kind of a lot of what Jeannie was dealing with which she couldn't figure out, you know, even though she got a car and he got a computer, you know, all the, the fun stuff they have with it, that she couldn't figure out why Ferris still got away with everything. It just, you know, that one little thing just drove her nuts when she big picture, you know, wasn't that big a deal. Well, of course, she runs home and she finds out and figures out when she races in that the whole doorbell scam doesn't work. She runs into his room and the and the uh, the strung up wire or the string pulls the mannequin up immediately. And so now she knows she knows he skipped school. He's gotten away with it. So she's trying to bust him at the same time uh, that Ed Rooney is trying to bust him uh, with her parents. But in the end, she realizes, hey, I can protect him uh, because I am his sister. Uh, I can protect him uh, at the end. I do think it's interesting. There's there's one bit of trivia, too. When she pulls up to the house in the car, we see the front license plate. Jay Betzler, are you familiar with the novelty, with the trivia of the front license plate on the car that Jeannie is driving in Ferris Bueller's I've, Day Off? I've seen all of the license plates are short versions of his movies, of Hughes' movies, but I can't you remember are which correct. one was. This one says TBC on the front of it, on the Illinois license plate, which is for The Breakfast Club. When Jeannie right, gets I remember Jake car. Ryan's was John Hughes, Jake Ryan's Porsche and 16 Candles was John Hughes's birthday. So he there has fun go. with the license plates in all, a lot of his movies I would take. I like that. All right, so so obviously the movie uh, narrows down and, and comes to a head uh, with the climactic conclusion of he's got to race home uh, because, you know, they're talking about actually, though, as friends when they're at the Chicago stock market, that they're not going to be around each other anymore. And, you know, and Ferris even looks at Sloan and says, let's get married, you know, today. And she's like, I'm not marrying you today. Uh, but, you know, they're trying to figure out what's their life going to be like without each other because it's going to be the summer. It's going to be different. Uh, and now they have to race home. And that's the kind of the climactic end of the movie where where uh, Jeannie was trying to, to bust him and catch him before he got back home. And so is Ed Rooney. And sooner or later, they're kind of staking out the house. <laughs> Ed got knocked unconscious in the kitchen. 
Um, I still remember that part in the theater, uh, Jay, where he sneaks in through the uh, the doggy door. She sees him, freaks out, and does like the the karate kicks, the yoga move or the gymnastics karate kicks, and lays him out. And the theater erupted and went berserk uh, on that. I still remember that to this day, 30-plus years But she years uses later. the house intercom to talk to him, too, remember? Say she just called the cops and she has herpes or something. In case, case he was thinking I have about a raging here. case of yeah. herpes. Yes, very nice. And then, of course, they bust her for the phony phone call uh, in the end. And then uh, the mom has to go down and pick her up at the police station, Cindy Pickett's character. So, uh, But anyway, the race happens, and, of course, he's running through the backyards and uh, ends up grabbing the drink. And, and of course, that uh, that scene has now been recreated in television commercials a couple of different times, including uh, with a Matthew Broderick-like character playing Ferris Bueller in the uh, Domino's Pizza commercials, right? If you could get the pizza there on time or not by running through the backyard. So they've, they've, they've paid homage to, uh, to Ferris in that regard that the end of that scene where he's running through the backyards, bouncing off the trampoline, grabbing the Pepsi, the old school Pepsi can out of the dad's hand that's grilling out, uh, that's been recreated some, and it's, it's still loved. Right, you know, there's a lot of stuff from this movie over time that's definitely been recreated. And, you know, there's also, there's been talk over time about possibly doing a sequel. Have you ever, ever done any reading, have you ever seen that, and seen any of your research where they talked about, oh, Ferris in college, or oh, Ferris as a grown-up and stuff, and Matthew Broderick said he, he turned it down. He said basically that this was a movie for its time that was great for its time. You know, and I want to, and we'll leave it that way. And good for and, you know, We often talk about these sequels that happen twenty and thirty years later, like we have the Top Gun and Coming to America when's coming up. You know, and I always point out how bad I thought Dumb and Dumber Two was. You know, and so I mean, I'm glad that Ferris Bueller didn't. There went another one. I mean, had it happened with him in college, we probably would have loved it, and we would have seen what happened with Sloan and stuff. But I mean, at the same time, looking back on it now in 2020 hindsight, I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, and uh, and Broderick actually made a television commercial that that appeared in the Super Bowl back in 2012, where he's in a Honda uh, S, uh, SUV, the CRV, uh, driving around in Los Angeles sightseeing, and he's using they they use the oh yeah music uh, that we have in uh, in the soundtrack, and uh, and they spoof on the name Broderick Broderick instead of Bueller Bueller in the Super Bowl ad, so. It, it has stood the test of time as kind of a You know there was a, a, a TV show version of it, right? Do you remember that? Right. And and how long was that even on? Was it on I more than a season? I believe it was on for one season, and um, Charlie Schlatter played Ferris, but it's very well known because Jeannie was played by Jennifer Aniston. That's ah. kind of the, the notoriety it has. But the um, you know how Mike North was quick about saying that the <laughs> city of Chicago was the star? And, you know, and then you look at the TV show and it was set in Santa Monica. So not quite the same as the movie. And they, well, they and go to was Ocean a, Park High and not, not Shermer High School. It Shermer. was a 1990 uh, one-year TV series. So it's been a while since that was even out. They were trying to capitalize a few years later uh, after the movie. It was probably and, when they realized there wasn't going to be a sequel to it. And, you know, and they decided, let's jump on and see if we can make anything out of it. That's That would be my guess. But, I mean, and... Remember Fast Times at Ridgemont High, how big a hit that was back in the early 80s with Phoebe Case, Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, the crew. And they made a uh, TV series out of it just plain old called Fast Times. And they brought Mr. Vargas and Mr. Hand. They were actually in the TV show version. And I think it might have lasted six episodes. <laughs> so sometimes these things are just better on the big screen. Agreed. We'll leave well enough alone. All right. Do we have any more trivia? We gave a little bit of trivia here and there about the, the game at Wrigley Field or the license plate 
of Jennifer Gray's car, of Jeannie's car. Any other trivia that we like from this? Um, not, I think we've hit most of the trivia kind of throughout. There's obviously a lot of stuff like the Ferrari was not a real Ferrari. It was kind of a kit car because they were too expensive to rent it just to destroy it or buy it to destroy it. Um, <laughs> Uh, that that was one that that I had off the top of my head. I know that Emilio Estevez was up for the um, for the role of Cameron and turned it down, which I really? think probably is better. I think because I think of Emilio Estevez as the jock, is you know Andrew Carr. Uh, of you know, course, that, that would be kind yes. of strange. Um, one note: uh, film critic Richard Roper, who's probably about the biggest film critic we have today, he named this as his favorite film. And so, kind of was translating that into Period. our. Yeah, Not just comedy, favorite, of all, favorite right. period. Wow. Yeah. And so um, translate that, we always kind of wrap things up with Siskel and Ebert, with Roger Ebert. Um, Roger Ebert gave it three stars, and he called it one of the most innocent movies in a long time, a sweet, warm-hearted comedy about a teenager who skips school so he can help his best friend win some self-respect. <laughs> the therapy he has in mind includes a day's visit to Chicago, and after we've seen the Sears Tower, Art Institute, Board of Trade, Parade down Dearborn Street, Gold Coast lunch, and a game at Wrigley. We have to concede that the city and the state film offices have done their jobs. If Ferris Bueller fails on every other level, it works as a travelogue for the city of Chicago. So he he likes it, and it goes on. He talks about you know obviously in the review he talks about the movie and stuff. He mentions the fact that um, it was directed by John Hughes, who he calls the philosopher of adolescence, and, and mentions that he's credits include Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. In all of his films, the adults are strange, distant creatures who love their teenagers but fail to understand them. And that's the case here, all right. All of the adults, including a bumbling high school dean, are dim-witted and one-dimensional. <laughs> and the movie's solutions to Cameron problems are pretty simplistic. But the film's heart is in the right place. It's a slight, whimsical, and sweet movie. And so that is that is Ebert. And for this one, I found Siskel. Since we always do Siskel and Ebert, Siskel did not like it. He said, it's an off day for fun. It's set in Chicago. It's it, it's not the most exciting day a teenager is spent ditching school. He says the film does not live up to our anticipation. And writer-director John Hughes, who lives part-time in Glenview, fails to live up to the reputation as the populist American filmmaker who understands kids best. And his goes on and on basically talking about says the film doesn't seem to know what it's about until the end. In the beginning, you've got young Ferris looking directly into the camera, de- delivering his philosophy on life, which he uses to explain why he ditched school for what's about to go on the 10th time. And that is something I was going to ask you about earlier. What do you think he did on those nine other days to, to make this number 10? I don't know. I mean, but clearly he has a, a habit of not wanting to show up, and it's well known. And his, and his sister, obviously, Jeannie, knows that he does this commonly, uh, and they're too good at it. And they, you know, they, they impersonate uh, you know, Sloan's dad trying to get her out. So obviously this is not the first time they've tried this. He has the elaborate plan that he, that he wants to break them out. So uh, it, There's another thing real quick. Sorry, let me interrupt you real quick. On, this, on Siskel's review, I want to mention this too. They, he says that when they disrupt a snooty restaurant, he calls it a weak ripoff of a similar scene in Beverly Hills Cop. So would that right. be when he wrecked the Harold Club buffet? I, I'm Correct. To, I can't remember the part. He talks his way. Yeah. Well, he yeah. talks his way past the maitre d. That's the gotcha. premise of it, okay. and he does it as Ramon, uh, Victor Maitland, you know, dark skin, yeah. Capricorn. Down the clinic. <laughs> he talk. He talks his way in. 
But the interesting thing, I, I remember seeing this in the uh, the director's version of the DVD uh, that John Hughes said, uh, was that, that the maitre d' in this case is a comedian, and he's a very funny guy that they had seen. I don't know the comedian's name off the top of my head. He's known forever as the maitre d' in Ferris Bueller. They had seen him in a comedy show at some point in Chicago and found him and found him through his manager uh, to come and be the... Uh, uh, Maitre D and and the the line when he looks at him it, it, it's a great line you talk about lines that that we quote all the time when Ferris looks at him and says uh, you know it's understanding that allows us uh, uh, people like us to tolerate a person such as yourself <laughs> he just kinda, he kind of looks at him and then but then later on says I weep for the future that's apparently an <laughs> off the cuff line from the comedian so they were using some uh, ad lib uh, in this but. That that scene obviously works, and it's an actual restaurant in downtown Chicago, which, again, uh, has changed names a couple of times. And there's actually a deleted scene, I guess, where in it they are trying pancreas, and, and it's nasty, and they don't want to eat it, and the other, the other uh, restaurant patrons are looking at them because of how bad it is. That didn't make the movie, but... It just it gives you an idea of uh, the comedy that was in this from John Hughes. Again, right in the role of him doing The Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles and, and eventually uh, Christmas Vacation. They're all being done in the mid to late 1980s, all set in and around Chicago. So good stuff with that. All right, what else? Anything else that yeah, we need I have, to cover? I have one other thing written down that I wanted to ask you about and get your thoughts on. Is there any scenario in real life where Cameron and Ferris are actually friends? Oh, of course there is. They're nothing like each other. Well, but you Cameron's know, so you know, awful. all but all the way through high school, um, you see situations that are that are odd. Well, why does this guy like that guy? And you pair up with different people. You just get to know them. And it, it in a lot of cases, it's uh, it's somebody that you grew up with. They were in elementary school with you. They live in the neighborhood with you. I think it's believable that they can be friends. Uh, but in, in this in this case, Cameron is sick. He doesn't want to go out. He's not feeling good. He's legitimately staying home from school because he's sick uh, here. But I think I think it works. I do I do believe that they are. By the way, we need to make one more mention that Matthew. I didn't realize this. Matthew Broderick was was actually nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy for Ferris As Bueller. He should have been. <laughs> How about that? Uh, you know, a lot of these movies that we do, they don't give uh, great. Uh, a critical recognition to maybe somebody in one of these. But in this case, Matthew Broderick did, at least from the Hollywood Foreign Press, that year he didn't win, but he at least was nominated in 1986. Well, And I have one last stuff. note I want to mention that, um, that I think it's, it's probably good. You mentioned the deleted scenes. I have a note where it says Ferris at the, uh, at the beginning or had asked his dad on the phone about bonds his father had purchased <laughs> for Ferris when he was born. And then he goes and takes one of them from a shoebox in his father's closet, cashes it in with his girlfriend, and uses the money to pay for the day off. And the, they took the scene out because it made Ferris look more like a thief than a lovable rogue. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I, I think that was a good call. I'm glad they didn't have that in. But they didn't have any problem stealing the dad's Ferrari and driving around well, that, in it. Which that is was a, more borrowing. You know, <laughs> whole lot bigger deal. They were going to back and they were going to drive cashing. home backwards to take the miles off. That's yeah, that's very clever. Which uh, which for the longest time, uh, teenagers everywhere thought that that might actually work, but it doesn't actually work. <laughs> but yeah, cashing in the bond was the least of their worries once they damaged the car. But I kind of like the way that, that works at the end of this, where where Cameron says, "No, you you know," it, Ferris is saying, "You can't take this much heat. I, I, I your your dad hates me already." And he's like, "No, yeah. Morris is going to come home, and we're going to have a chat, have a little talk, <laughs> have a little yeah. chat, because he wants to deal with him once and for all." 
about his dad caring more about the car than about him uh, in life. So there's a lot of great life lessons here in this. You know, a, a great teenage comedy by John Hughes, the late John Hughes now, um, that, that he left us with such a legacy of movies like this. I laugh every time I see it. And uh, in, in, in in whenever it's on, so I'm still laughing at four, at Ferris Bueller's thirty day uh, thirty years later uh, at Ferris Bueller's day off. I agree, an awesome movie, a fun a fun movie to watch. You know, like I said earlier, makes me want to go to Chicago. Like pretty much every time we do Ocean's Eleven or The Hangover, any movie like that, I always talk about how it makes. I got to tell go the Vegas. story. It makes me want to go to Chicago. I got to tell the story that last year when the Buccaneers and in part of my broadcast duties, I uh, I do Buccaneers radio and we played the Bears in Chicago. I had to crack off a photo to my man, the famous Jay, standing below. Remember an elevated train, and I was pointing I up to it. I think I actually made a phone call too, and I said, "From the fugitive, I want you to hear the sound of an elevated." train and i held the phone up as it roared by so i've given you a little taste but now you know what i said i knew that was an elevated train yeah yeah exactly that's that's, that is an elevated train and then uh we i just gave you a taste i want you to go experience chicago for yourself and i'm sure mike north would be happy to be your tour guide and we by the way want to thank him for coming on he popped on to talk ferris bueller with us again that man i can't say enough jay that man is a chicago sports radio and sports media icon uh, who's been on the air there for over 30 years. So uh, it, a treat to have him on talking some about Chicago and about that heyday. Interesting that when the Cubs got good and the Bears won in 85, business was never better in his hot dog stands day in and day out than with those sports teams being good in and around when John Hughes and the cast and crew was shooting this on location in Chicago in 1985 for the release in 1986. How about that? Yeah, I wonder how many places are like that because here in the DFW area when the Cowboys are good, like the crime rate goes down, the employment oh, yeah. rate Rates, unemployment rates down. Whatever I mean, it's, it's insane the psychological effect it has on the region. So people I wonder go if it's buy that way things. Everywhere. Retail people go buy things, go buy cars, eat more in restaurants. Everybody feels good. Sports brings us together, but you know what? Fun movies bring us together too. And we're going out the same way the movie goes out with the oh yeah with the music here and the classic scenes with the credits rolling of Ed Rooney hobbling down the street, having having. Warm, soft gummy bears. And he ends up getting on the bus. What does the bus driver say? Mr. Rooney, you've been in a fight? (laughs) He has to get on the bus with the kids. And then, of course, classically, he looks at the uh, the binder that's been drawn on, the artwork that, of course, says, save Ferris. It's the perfect way to end the movie. Doesn't he see something on the bus, too, says, like, Rooney sucks or something like that? Uh, (laughs) I know. He's just got to deal with it there. And so that's how the movie went out. That's how we're going out. We had a lot of fun talking 1986, taking a day off. It's great to go back and laugh, isn't it, with Ferris Bueller? Yes, it is. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. There is the famous Jay. Follow him at the famous Jay on social media, on Twitter. Our thanks also to Mike North. Follow him on Twitter, on social media at North, the number two North, North to North on Twitter. Uh, great insight from uh, the Chicago standpoint. Again, follow this show on social media, on Twitter at We've Seen That, and also our Facebook page, our We've Seen That Facebook page. We love talking comedy, John Hughes comedy. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Go rate the show. Rate and rank the show on iTunes or on Stitcher or on Google Play where more will find out about it. Go look for us under iTunes and uh, and Stitcher and Google Play under We've Seen That and subscribe. For the famous Jay, I'm TJ Reeves. Thanks for indulging us on a day off uh, from school with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bye.